and welcome to PCTY Talks. I'm your host, Sherry Simpson. During our time together, we'll stay close to the news and info you need to succeed as an HR pro. And together, we'll explore topics around HR thought leadership, compliance, and real life HR situations we face every day. On today's episode, I sit down with Brian Mead, partner of McDermott, Will, and Emery, to talk about the latest employment law updates and all things COVID. So Brian, thanks so much for jumping on the podcast today. I think this topic is um, super relevant, so I really appreciate the time that you're going to spend with me. Yeah, happy to be here. So I'm going to dive right in and hope that you can start with giving a brief overview of some employment law updates for the last... I don't know, 18 months, you know, excluding CARES and FFCRA and PPP, but like the other things we should be paying attention to. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll skip all the acronyms that um, em- employers have become painfully familiar with over the last uh, few months due to, to, due to the pandemic. But a few areas uh, that I would touch on uh, for employers to uh, be aware of or monitor um, that have been recent developments in employment law. So the first of those would uh, relate to non-compete laws um, in various states, as well as kind of a federal push uh, from President Biden uh, to put this on the radar of uh, the FTC. So we're seeing uh, various new non-compete laws uh, in different states popping up, uh, Illinois, Nevada, Oregon, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, just to name a few. Uh, there are certainly others. Um, and these laws are primarily aimed uh, at banning non-competes for low-wage workers. So we're seeing certain uh, salary um, or hourly wage cutoffs uh, below which uh, it's unlawful for uh, certain employees to have uh, non-competes. Other states are taking uh, what I'd say is probably even a more aggressive approach uh, against non-competes. Massachusetts is a state that is a state that comes to mind uh, with respect to that as well setting forth um, you know, various requirements in terms of notice periods for a non-compete. Um, it's kind of an open issue as to whether or not the employer has to then provide a base salary or a garden leave period uh, during the period of non-compete um, as well. So uh, something to be aware of if, uh, if your, your company does have uh, non-compete or restrictive covenant agreements, um, and they're implementing those on a multi-state basis, you'll, you'll want to uh, confirm that you're in compliance with all of those uh, different state laws because uh, it can be kind of hard to, to keep track of a lot of developments in that uh, as well. Um, and then the second point on that is that President Biden has uh, recently instructed the FTC uh, in an executive order to look into regulating the unfair use of non-compete agreements. Uh, as of now, that executive order is just an instruction uh, so there's no regulation from the FTC. There's no law that's been passed or anything of that nature, but it is uh, something to keep on a radar and uh, to monitor moving forward. So that's uh, that's the first area of what I'd say is kind of developing employment law for employers to be aware of. Um, the second relates to uh, background check laws that are creating requirements for employers above and beyond what the current federal requirements are under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Uh, So oftentimes, employers are thinking, for example, I comply with the FCRA, uh, and due to that compliance, you know, I don't really have to worry about um, background check laws outside of the federal requirements. Well, uh, of course, that's not the case. There are states that go uh, past 
the federal requirements and place additional burdens um, on employers. Uh, Illinois is uh, one of the more recent states that's uh, developed a law related to that. So Illinois uh, had already passed what's called a ban the box uh, law, which prevents employers from asking about arrest records or criminal history and employment applications. Um, and then just recently, uh, they amended that law to go a step further uh, and prohibit employers from using conviction records as a basis for adverse employment actions. Um, for example, refusing to hire, of course, or terminating somebody based on a conviction. Uh, but there are two um, substantial uh, exceptions to that law, of course. So it's not an across-the-board ban that you can't hire somebody with a conviction. Um, the exceptions to the law are if there's a substantial relationship uh, between the criminal offense and the position sought, or there's an unreasonable risk to uh, the property or safety of an individual or the company. Um, and so with those, then the, the law sets forth certain factors for employers to consider in making those determinations. Um, it requires employers to engage in a uh, quote-unquote interactive assessment. Um, and then there are certain notification requirements. That's probably the most important point for employers to understand is that uh, they have to give a, a written notice out to um, individuals that they're refusing to hire. <clears throat> and um, certain information needs to be included in that notice as well. So Illinois is not the only state doing this. Um, I'd say the main takeaway with respect to that development is that um, if you are refusing to hire or contemplating not hiring somebody based on a criminal record or conviction history, uh, best to loop in your HR folks and probably uh, internal or external legal folks to make sure that not only are you complying with uh, the Fair Credit Reporting Act under federal law, but to double check and make sure that there aren't any applicable um, state laws as well uh, where you operate. Um, and then two, uh, two minor things that will kind of blend together is one uh, that employers should be aware of as well. So we're seeing quite a few more uh, states adopt mandatory sick leave laws uh, for employees. So uh, California, New York, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Nevada, all uh, recently enacting sick leave laws. And uh, California, just as an example, um, it's not just at the state level, it's at the local uh, and county level as well. Uh, California is kind of its own uh, separate planet when it comes to employment laws and uh, creating all sorts of requirements for uh, employers to be aware of. So you wanna make sure that you're complying with those sick leave <clears throat> um, laws and that there's a policy in place that does comply with that as well. Um, and then uh, what's kind of a, you know, developing and almost hot topic, so to speak, is uh, marijuana laws and uh, how states are handling that with respect to uh, legalizing it, uh, what the impact is on uh, testing employees and, you know, what a positive test means if somebody, you know, is, is using it pursuant, for example, to a marijuana card. Um, or something that's been prescribed by their physician. So there are, uh, as things currently stand, there are 30 plus states uh, with laws related to marijuana and uh, roughly 15 uh, states with laws that expressly deal uh, with the employment relationship um, and potential termination or refusal to hire based on positive tests. So a lot of those are newer laws. Um, and again, it kind of interplays with the background check and drug testing and, and all of the hiring process uh, that employers should be aware of. So I'd say those are kind of the three 
three or four main uh, developing areas of employment law. It's non-competes, background checks, uh, sick leave, and uh, developing marijuana laws as well. With non-competes, I know that a lot of companies that offer things like restricted stock units have non-competes built into basically accepting those units. How has the legislation affected those if, you know, you're expanding an RSU program that has that um, and you're kind of bringing that down into, you know, younger and younger um, employees in their career? Is there anything related to that that we should be um, aware of or that it speaks to in, in what you're seeing? Yeah, that's an interesting dichotomy because, um, as you mentioned, RSUs can be granted to employees of any level. Um, and that would, could include, for example, somebody who's maybe not necessarily making a huge base salary, um, but they're getting a, a larger stock grant. And so um, in a situation like that, where there is, in fact, a non-compete in the RSU grant, uh, you'll want to double check and make sure that the base salary that the employee does receive is above uh, whatever threshold might apply uh, in a state law, for example. So um, I, I'm I'm blanking right now on what exact uh, state that it is, but I want to say one of them recently has a $75,000 base salary cutoff. And I could easily imagine a situation where you have a sixty or $70,000 uh, per year base salary employee who also receives RSU grants with a non-compete in it. And so that's a situation where uh, the state law could uh, override and trump um, the non-compete in the RSU grant and make it invalid. So uh, it is something to, um, to pay attention to. But more generally, uh, the laws are not, uh, you know, for example, attacking um, RSU grants or non-competes in the context of RSU grants. That's all still permissible. Um, and then assuming that it's drafted uh, in, in a way that's reasonable and enforceable, uh, it still should be fine, again, with the um, kind of asterisks next to that saying that it, the person does still need to be above uh, a base salary requirement uh, for that state. So with the resurgence of COVID with the Delta and the Delta plus variant now, um, you know, HR teams are again back into like the thick of COVID related questions. So I'm curious what legal cases you've seen surfacing related to COVID. Yeah, um, it's a good question. Uh, unfortunately, I think all of us thought we were kind of done with this for a little while, uh, myself included as an employment uh, attorney. And, and now, you know, we're right back in the thick of it, like, like you had said. So um, in terms of legal cases that we're seeing, uh, there are actually some, some good public resources that track all of this and provide some interesting data. Um, since, so the latest information that I had seen is that there have been roughly uh, 3,000 employment-related lawsuits uh, filed since January of 2020 uh, that are related to COVID-19, um, which is, in, from my perspective, you know, not a ridiculous number of cases. Uh, from the clients that I speak to, they're not, you know, being inundated with lawsuits related to this uh, because they've they've been very careful and um, cognizant of how they're approaching COVID-19 issues. I mean, if you're not terminating an employee in a situation related to COVID-19, you're, you're likely not going to face a lawsuit um, at, at just a very high level. But uh, of those uh, 3,000 or so employment lawsuits, the, the vast majority of those seem to be related to um, a handful of you know, buckets of lawsuits. One is employment discrimination. Um, and 
you know, the two types of discrimination that come to mind uh, with respect to COVID-19 are religious uh, discrimination and then disability uh, discrimination as well, which I, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about a bit more detail uh, later. Um, also some uh, remote work and leave issues related to COVID-19 and the lawsuits being filed. Um, and then some retaliation and whistleblower claims. So for example, uh, somebody saying that they made a complaint to HR or to, uh, you know, their local government agency about the company not complying with, for example, CDC guidance or the state or local guidance uh, with respect to safety and social distancing and masking, et cetera. Um, and then that they were subsequently terminated uh, as a result of making that complaint. And so that's when you wind up with uh, a retaliation or a whistleblower claim. So those are the types of uh, lawsuits that we're, we're typically seeing. Um, and again, you know, not not a uh, overwhelming number of lawsuits, but yeah, a, a pretty consistent amount have been filed since uh, January. So I thought I'd kind of go down the rabbit hole of questions that I know are on my mind and probably on our listeners' mind as they get through this um, season again, <laughs> as I'll call it. Um, let's talk about vaccines. Can I require my employees to be vaccinated to come to work? Yes. Uh, so the short answer to that is uh, yes, uh, with some exceptions uh, and carve outs. So um, uh, we can talk through a few of those exceptions, but the, the primary exceptions are going to relate to uh, disability uh, in requests for religious accommodations. Um, so specifically with disabilities, uh, those will be governed by what's called the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA, uh, which, or which protects employees with dis disabilities. Um, and then Title VII uh, for the religious accommodation, with which protects employees with sincerely held religious beliefs. Um, there are also so those are two federal laws. Uh, there are also states with similar laws uh, that will apply in situations like this. So um, while you can require vaccinations, um, you do still have an obligation as an employer to accommodate disability accommodation requests and religious accommodation requests. Um, and uh, both of those laws <clears throat> require those accommodations where doing so will not constitute an undue burden for the employer. Um, and so in, in practice, there's no uh, you know, one-size-fits-all um, answer to, well, what does it mean to accommodate? Uh, these are all individualized analyses. So what's important is that employers kind of follow um, the framework under all of those laws and go through the interactive process to the extent that an employ employee does have a request for a uh, disability or religious accommodation. So um, the, the key takeaway is that employers can require employees uh, uh, to get vaccinated. Uh, and in fact, I think that's the trend that we're seeing among clients even now. There are some uh, very public announcements from large companies with tens or hundreds of thousands of employees who are now mandating um, vaccinations for the employees. But again, it's with these car routes. Um, so uh, if you receive a request from uh, an employee related to uh, any of these accommodations, uh, you'll need to go through the analysis under both uh, the ADA uh, or the applicable Title VII for religion. Uh, the ADA actually uh, excuses employers from uh, accommodating employees, but only if uh, it would pose a significant difficulty or expense um, on the employer. 
Um, and Title VII has a little bit uh, of a more lenient standard for employers, which, which only actually requires uh, a de minimis. ADA, in comparison to Title VII, Title VII actually just requires uh, a showing of a de minimis cost or burden to the employer. Uh, but in either scenario, the, uh, the analysis is actually, um, you need to look at, can we provide an accommodation to this employee? And, and what are they requesting, right? So, um, for example, in the disability accommodation uh, realm, they will likely submit paperwork from a, a physician <clears throat> that would say, here is, uh, here's my disability. Here's, uh, you know, for example, maybe how long I expect that it will last. And here is um, the requested accommodation that I'm asking for from the employer. So you would want that paperwork and uh, you'll want to first evaluate uh, what's the underlying limitation. Um, you only need to provide as an employer a reasonable accommodation. You're not obligated to provide uh, every accommodation that the employee requests, but it might be, for example, uh, I can't be vaccinated, but can I continue? Can I come into the office and wear a mask? Um, and, and so that could easily be a request. Or it could also be, you know, can I continue to remote work until, um, uh, you know, case numbers have gone substantially down and the spread is is no longer a huge issue and people aren't dealing with uh, COVID nineteen as much anymore. Um, so those are two of kind of the common requests that I would I would think would come up for uh, employers. Uh, once you have those requests, you'll need to compare it to, um, okay, what's the employee's actual job? What are the job requirements? Um, has this person been working remotely for, you know, the last 18 months? Um, and if so, you know, can we extend that for three months or six months? Like, did, have they been fulfilling their job uh, responsibilities? Or um, is it, you know, we do actually need this person uh, in the office. And if we do need them in the office and they're requesting remote work, Maybe an accommodation that we offer uh, is to allow them to come into the office, social distance, and wear a mask in the office. Um, and that could be what you'd offer. Um, and as part of all of that, you'll be considering as the employer, um, uh, does the accommodation pose safety risks for this employee, for others in the workforce, for my customers, uh, et cetera? So uh, that's um, at a high level, the uh, analysis and interactive process that you want to engage in with the employee, uh, you should never uh, just go straight to, no, we can't accommodate this without, you know, thinking through what are the options here um, and, you know, can we come up with some sort of creative solution that allows the person to have some sort of accommodation while still fulfilling the essential functions of his or her job. ADA accommodations tend to be... Um a little bit more cut and dry? I mean, obviously you're still going through that collaboration process and having the conversations, but like you said, there's there's usually some sort of medical documentation that you can reference. When it comes to religious accommodations, I think it can get a little bit more complex um, as you're trying to work through those. So I appreciate, you know, you giving those criteria that, you know, it's still at the end of the day, it's about safety and about, um, you know, can we make the accommodation as an employer without undue hardship? I am curious, though, so when you get to that point and you've decided, yeah, we can't accommodate, um, can we terminate because they don't want to be vaccinated and that's something that we've put in place? Yeah, so the, sh the short answer I'd say is, um, you know, it depends and I can run through a few hypotheticals as to like when that would maybe actually be uh, the situation. So um, let, again, let's assume across the board mandatory vaccine policy for all of your employees. 
And if an employee comes to you and says, um, well, I don't want to get vaccinated. You can't make me get vaccinated and I'm just not going to do it. Uh, and they're not offering a, you know, a disability reason or they're not offering a, a religious accommodation reason. Uh, in a situation like that, um, it, it, it is permissible to proceed with termination, right? Um, but uh, in a situation where uh, there is these requests for disability or religious accommodations and we, need, and we, need, we do then need to go through that entire process, right? Um, and ultimately, if we come to the determination that, uh, you know, for example, there are there are no accommodations that can be offered uh, in order to allow this employee to do his or her job, uh, or uh, the accommodations that we can come up with pose uh, significant difficulty or expense uh, or uh, safety risks uh, at the job, uh, then it is possible that we would reach a determination um, that you know, termination is the only cause of action. Um, an example of that, um, and this is kind of far out on, on the like hypothetical scale, but let's assume, you know, somebody has to uh, internationally travel as, as part of his or her job. Uh, they have in-person meetings with clients uh, in other countries. And the only way now and for the foreseeable future to uh, engage in that type of international travel is to be vaccinated, right? Uh, you can't do Zoom uh, in this hypothetical. You can't do Zoom meetings with the customers and clients. Like it's too important. You have to actually be there in person. Um, and the the request maybe from the individual is, uh, well, you know, I'm not going to get vaccinated. Can I just do phone calls with clients or something like that? Um, that's potentially a situation where we would say, you know, like the accommodation request really is is not allowing this person to do the essential functions of his or her job which are to travel internationally, meet these clients in person, um, and to travel internationally, you have to be vaccinated, right? Um, so that's a scenario where, uh, you know, we'd, we'd weigh some of those risks from a legal perspective, from a business perspective, and we would potentially um, be comfortable with termination there. I think that was such a good example because it kind of highlights making sure that in your job descriptions, you have some of those requirements of traveling and um, remote work and some of the things that we've talked about previously on the podcast. So um, I really actually like your hypothetical because I think there's there's practical things we should prepare for in advance if you haven't done that yet, looked at you know your job descriptions and job postings, those kinds of things. Yeah, that, that, that's an excellent point. Um, and the, you know, the first uh, piece of evidence, so to speak, that an employee would would look at in a situation like that is is the job description, and they would say, "Well, hold on, this this doesn't say that I have to travel internationally, uh, or that this is you know one of my essential job functions." Um, and now you're saying that this is so key that I can't even do my job. So, uh, absolutely uh, a good point there, and something that employers uh, should be looking at uh, in, in order to make these types of decisions. So let's say that you've implemented this in your organization. You're only allowing, um, you know, vaccinated employees in the office, or you have some sort of accommodation, you know, process in place. Um, what if a vaccinated person tests positive? Are we required to quarantine as employers? Are can we require that? Um, you know, has there been any precedent on that? As we've seen, you know, people who have been vaccinated and are not. Yeah, being hospitalized, right? That the vaccine is working for them, but they are positive and transmitting. Um, yep. What have you seen around that? Yeah, so th this one I think is a bit um, simpler, hopefully, for employers to deal with in that um, 
you know, anytime somebody's testing positive, my advice is let's follow the CDC guidance. Um, and w- whether they're vaccinated or not, right? Like you want to keep your workplace safe. Um, and you want to give advice to that employee uh, in a way that they're not continuing to come into the office and potentially spreading it. So um, I'd say we should follow CDC guidance. Um, it is permissible if somebody's vaccinated and they test positive for COVID-19. Um, it is permissible as an employer to say you should stay home um, and you should isolate and quarantine uh, pursuant to the CDC guidance. Uh, employers are permitted to do that. Um, last I had checked, the CDC guidance, uh, I think this was just yesterday, so it might have, might have changed um, already, but the guidance is uh, to isolate and quarantine for uh, 10 days uh, since the symptoms first appear or since the positive test, um, uh, and to have 24 hours with no fever or the use of fever-reducing medic- medications, um, and to not have any other COVID-19-related symptoms. So once that's happened, uh, especially if the person is uh, asymptomatic, uh, it, it would basically be, a, okay, wait 10 days, um, you know, work remotely if you can, right? Assuming that they're not um, dealing with all sorts of bad symptoms, uh, go work remotely for 10 days, and then it would be permissible to, to return to the office. So you want to do that in order to uh, protect your workforce from the spread, right? Because even though this person is not dealing with bad symptoms and is, is vaccinated, they still could potentially spread it to others um, who might have different reactions. And so if you want to protect your workforce, you'll also want to uh, keep a safe workplace uh, consistent with OSHA requirements. Uh, so for all of those reasons, um, I'd recommend that you uh, have employees who test positive still continue to quarantine or remote work uh, when that does happen. What if I have employees, let's, let's say that, let's say I go ahead and I'm, I'm doing the vaccinations, I'm collecting the vaccination records, right? That's how I'm deciding whether, you know, employees can come in the office or not. Um, can I collect that same data if I have a fully remote or a hybrid remote uh, workforce, can I collect the vaccination data from my remote employees? Yeah. So the answer to that is that yes, you can. Um, and I could come up with plenty of reasons why um, you might even want to do that as an employer too. So uh, for example, uh, e- even at you know a company like yours, where some employees might be hundred percent remote or uh, any other companies where they might have hundred percent remote employees, um, I can still imagine situations where uh, those companies would have um, yearly conferences or, you know, an in-person Christmas party or something similar, right? And uh, the employer would want to know in a situation like that, who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated uh, in order to plan for, you know, safety purposes and everything else. So uh, it is permissible to ask uh, for the vaccination data from uh, 100% remote employees and then from hybrid uh, employees as well. So Brian, to wrap up our discussion, I'd love to hear from your opinion. Where do you see the future of vaccines and employment law heading in the next, let's say, 18 months? Yeah. Um, well, if you would ask me this about 18 months ago, I, I probably wouldn't have had anything to say about any pandemics. Um, and if you would ask me six months ago, I wouldn't have been aware uh, of the Delta variant. So things are obviously changing, right? Um, but the trend that I am seeing uh, for employers more recently, and there have been a lot of public announcements uh, for this as well, uh, is that employers are 
mandating the vaccine um, or they're offering incentives to uh, their, their workforce and their groups of employees uh, to try to get as many people vaccinated as possible. So uh, just in terms of um, you know, a few public companies that have done this or uh, public in terms of being in the news, uh, United Airlines just announced uh, that it will require its uh, 67,000 plus employees to get vaccinated. Uh, of course, with the same uh, religious and, and disability uh, exceptions that we discussed previously. Uh, Tyson Foods uh, is doing the same for its uh, 120,000 uh, employees as well. So uh, I think the trend more recently uh, really is for uh, employers to start mandating vaccines uh, for their workforce and then dealing with certain exceptions for accommodations uh, as necessary. Uh, and to the extent that um, clients and employers uh, don't want to go quite that far, um, I am seeing uh, quite a few clients that are considering uh, incentivizing uh, their employees to uh, do that also uh, with, for example, you know, $500 or $1,000 or something similar uh, if you can show that you uh, have proof of vaccination. So uh, from my perspective, those are, um, you know, the two main trends that I've been seeing recently with uh, with clients. I think it's really interesting, the whole concept of incentivizing, because I, I can tell you I've heard from people who got the vaccine before these incentives have come out, um, and they're like, man, I should have waited. But, uh, but you're right, who could have predicted what was happening in the climate right now and what we're seeing? So Brian, this has been an amazing discussion, super insightful, super relevant and timely. I appreciate you jumping on with me. Yeah, great, Sherry. Appreciate you having me on. Uh, and it was my pleasure to join. This podcast is brought to you by Paylocity, a leading HCM provider that frees you from the tasks of today so you can focus more on the promise of tomorrow. If you'd like to submit a topic or appear as a guest on a future episode, email us at pctytalks at paylocity.com.